This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. We're going to continue with Promises and Pitfalls of the Spiritual Path. It uh, was a talk that Ramdas gave in 1988. And um, the first part of this is about uh, teachers and uh he points out one particular teacher whose name is Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, died near uh, early 80s, mid 80s, something like that, uh, was a great lama who really translated the, or he made plain English and easy for Westerners to absorb the teachings of Tibet. He was uh, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Ramdas points him out as, um, he says, the quality of a really good teacher is rascalness. They're not um, following any spiritual, uh, you know, spiritual course 101. They're not following any uh, series of steps with their students. They're not just expounding on the Dharma. They're not just meditation masters. You know, they are beyond that. They, um, uh, as, as Trungpa would say, they act, they teach how to be a warrior and how to, how to grasp this life day to day in a, in a way that uh, transmutes uh, negative energy. And um, so Ramdas talks about, it. so I, I'm getting a, uh, you know, or it's coming up that uh, people are talking about teachers and, uh, um, and, and problems with uh, sexual advances to their students and beyond. Uh, there's a particular um, Zen master in the United States. There's a huge scandal out there. It's running through the Internet as well, of course, um, who is very old and is, uh, you know, has been, uh, quote unquote, accused of sexual misconduct with his students, uh, female students, um, and has uh, and has denied it apparently for a very long time, and now it's coming out that some of the students who have gotten older, they're talking about their experiences, and not all of them are negative. There are some positive ones as well. And, um, so this, this is an, this is an outrage that's gone on here, um, in the last little, little while, particularly he was, he is a very esteemed Zen master. So, uh, I, I've gotten some questions, uh, you know, just that have come through the foundation, you know, some of the uh, Ramdas, uh, we've talked about it and we're going to talk some more about it actually. And I think it's a good subject and, um, what Ramdas talks about in this particular uh, talk around teachers, I think, is the most profound response to any of the sort of stuff that has um, that that that's gone on, uh, particularly uh, lately with this uh, this Zen master. Hmm. I mean, Trungpa, he's a good example. And, and Ramdas does talk about this. It's, um, he had his students drinking, gambling, eating meat, 
and changing partners. I mean, not that he had, he was changing partners. He was sleeping with people. It was all way out front. I mean, we used to go there. Uh, I remember Ram Das and, and, and I and Krishna Das and other people that, uh, You've all met along the way, one way or the other here, uh, to uh, a place that was called Tale of the Tiger in Barnett, Vermont. It still is there under a different name. Can't remember what it is. And uh, we would go and hang out with him and uh, and be students of his. And it was completely wild. I mean, he'd sit up there giving a talk, drinking flasks of sake and not being moved a millimeter in any way that you could tell that he was drunk. I mean, sometimes a little slurring was going on. <laughs> so everyone was going, what kind of teacher is this? This is crazy. He's completely out of his mind. And, and, and Ram Dass talks about how the judging mind, yeah, we are, we were like judging this going, this is insane. Although the actual, the translation of, as, as I said before, these Tibetan teachings were, I mean, he was fantastic. He was just fantastic. And then, and then we saw the quality of his students as time went on. Uh, and as he mentions in this talk, um, and, and they were extraordinarily committed to, to the tradition that he brought to the contemporary, um, um, melding that he brought to it because, and he spoke English perfectly. He had, he had studied in England, Scotland, and, um, they were, they were steeped in their practice. You know, this, this belied this whole thing of, of, you know, him because it was about, you know, he wasn't afraid, and this is this is key. He wasn't afraid to take them through their obsessions, and then and thereby, uh, you know, deepening their practice. He was not afraid. He and and in 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 that way, of course, he was very much a tantric teacher in 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 that way, where he he took on the you know what's right in front of all of us you know our obsessions are uh, he took them on and showed how uh, what he would call a warrior you transmute these obsessions into a deeper place um but you never know you don't know if was he hung up at all in any of these places i mean how would we know you know, and there was this guy Rajneesh, right? Uh, many, many years ago. He had 1992 Rolls Royces. Was this a ploy on his part to suck people in to deal with the, their own greed or whatever the hell it is? Or is he a hung up Indian? I mean, this is what he says. <laughs> I mean, it, it is perfect. And, and the bottom line is, um, and, uh, this is grand advice for all of us. All you need to know is if you want to be free, you use the teacher as hard as you can to be free. And their karmic problems are their karmic problems. It's their problem. Whatever they, they are creating is not nothing to do with us. Now, in the case, you know, uh, of course, the, the grand fortune that we had which is a wild understatement of being able to be uh, with Neem Karoli Baba, where you absolutely knew without a doubt there was no question. You were not wondering, is this a pure teacher? He was not a teacher. He is not a teacher. He is, he, he it was simple and simply uh, 
just swimming in that being and what that represents way beyond that particular uh, body, which has nothing to do with it. And we were fortunate to actually meet somebody who embodied that, uh, grant you that, but uh, beyond that, I mean, what we understand today who that is is way beyond you know any kind of a body and uh, is accessible so this is that's a separate issue that is not a teacher so i think this um, what ramdas talks about here is extremely profound and input it's not that profound but it's extremely important I, I mean i guess it is profound it's profound in the way that you know so many people in the west have so many issues with teachers and so-called gurus who self-proclaimed so i think this is a great way to have a vantage point you cannot you know um there's no one to blame you can't blame the teacher for you know um for anything what else is he talking about here um oh spiritual powers are a pitfall on the path uh, after doing some decent meditating for a while, you things start to happen, and you start to get, uh, you know, when you get way more one-pointed, the things you you know you can that uh, certainly engenders more love, more peace, more power, and power not necessarily in in the uh, negative sense. So he talked about these experiences he had with Sai Baba in India, who, you know, who was producing medallions and so forth out of the thin air, and, and Muktananda, who, who um, gave him a mantra that God put him way out there, and so on. And, and, you know, and he talked about all this. I, I only, I remember one thing about this. Of course, Maharaji was doing this day to day with us, what's called knower of all hearts, Antarayami, the greatest miracle. They know all your past, your present, and your future. And it's not even a matter of like reading minds. It's a matter of just knowing some of the stuff that he would tell us. We weren't even uh, conscious of it. It was so buried deep. Um, but uh, we had a mentor uh, named Dada Mukherjee. He was our translator. He he was like uh, the perfect. Uh, he was just a perfectly in tune with Maharaji. He was an incredible guy. And he was like our uncle, which is what Dada means. And he would, he, for instance, he had a miracle where Maharaji grabbed his hand in, in the foothills of the Himalayas in, in the ashram there, said, Dada, let's go see Hanumanji. And they went to where the Murti, the statue of Hanuman was, and they stood in front of it. And, uh, the next, and, and Maharaji, uh, Dada says, Maharaji grabbed my hand, took my hand. The next thing I knew, I was waking up, uh, by the side of the river, which runs right on the side of the ashram, about, uh, you know, a few hundred yards down the river, downstream. And people came and they got me back and, and, you know, and all, I knew is that he said, I felt Hanuman had taken me flying over the ridge above the ashram is what I remember. And then 
waking up by the side of the river. And Dada and Maharaji comes running out and goes, where's Dada? Where's Dada? What happened to Dada? And then after that, Dada said to Maharaji, you know what? I don't care for these miracles. I'm not, in, he said exactly, I am not interested in your miracles, Baba. I'm interested in the, in the human part. I'm interested in the compassion. I'm not interested in your miracles. And whenever he, he, he told, I don't know how many, Dada would tell these stories over and over. I enjoyed that over and over hearing him say that. And that's because that's really what it is that we share that love, compassion and human caring that that uh, that we got from from uh, from him. And that really represents what the one is, as far as I can tell. So here we go. It's a, a great, great talk. Uh, Ramdas here and now uh, the uh, promises and pitfalls of the spiritual path part two because you see the thing about a method is that for a method to work it has to trap you if you try to dilettante your way through it doesn't work you've got to become a meditator but if you end up a meditator you lost you want to end up free not a meditator there are a lot of people who just end up meditators I've meditated for 42 years and I you know and they look at you with intense you know with earnestness you know uh, it's the golden chain of righteousness that caught them again but a method must trap you and then finally if it works it self-destructs and you come through the other end and you're free of method that's the story that's what Ramakrishna's gospel of Ramakrishna is so wonderful about because he just went through Kali worship and then came out and then started to tr explore all the other methods because once you come through your method all methods lead you to the same thing people say well how do you do Buddhist meditation and you've got a Hindu guru and you're a Jew you know <laughs> I say, I don't have any problem. What's your problem? It seems fine for me. I, and it all, Shema Yisrael is all, there's only one God and the one has no name, so there's no form, so that's Nirvana. I don't have any problem with that. What do you... The, um, the righteousness that we were, um, the way we were approaching the spiritual path had an element of righteousness in it and teachers came along who really helped us a lot with it. The teacher that helped me most about my righteousness probably was Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, because, uh, and what you look for in a really good teacher is that quality of rascalness. Not scoundrelness, but rascalness. And uh, I remember when I was teaching at Naropa the first summer uh, that Naropa started, um, I was having a hard time with Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, and one of the problems was that he had all of his students drunk most of the time. He had them busy gambling, heavy meat diets. And I thought, what kind of a spiritual teacher is this? All right, I mean, you can understand my dilemma. I came out of a Hindu renunciate path, you know. You, mm -mm, you know. Hindus are always afraid of falling over the edge, so the best thing is to just keep it all separate. But here he was, just 
taking them down the hell, the path to hell as far as I was concerned. And I was sitting judging. Oh, was I judging. Oh, was I, when I think back. When I looked at those same students a few years later, I saw students deep in the 100,000 prostrations, deep in the heaviest spiritual practices, because he had taken them through their obsessions and then on to deeper practices. He wasn't afraid to do that, while most of the other traditions were afraid to do that for fear of what he would get lost along the way. And that's what a tantric teacher is not afraid to do. And tantrics are very exciting and very scary. And you never know whether the tantric is just hung up her or himself, or whether they're an exquisite teacher. See, and there's no way you can know. Was Rajneesh's 92 Rolls Royces a ploy, or was it really a hung-up Indian, you know? I mean, you don't never know. All you know is that if you want to be free, you use them as hard as you can to be free, and their karmic problems are their karmic problems. See, and that's the secret you finally find out about teachers. So our period was a period of the, we were called the me generation, and that was because there was a narcissism, there was an inner work we had to do, and we still have to do it. An inner work that made us somewhat oblivious to our social roles in society. We were less interested in political things. and. Um, there was some metaphysical confusion around that, which is reflected in the difference, say, between um, uh, Theravadan Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. Theravadan Buddhism, in the simplest, this is simplistic, and we all agree, and if Jack Cornfield's here, he knows I'm not speaking seriously, but the, the, the Theravadans, in effect, say, look, my job is for me to get enlightened. Then if I get enlightened, nothing exists anyway. That solves the problem. The Mahayana Buddhism say, nobody makes it till everybody makes it. So I might as well take the Bodhisattva vow and hang back and help everybody because there's no, I can't go anywhere till you get done too. You can see these are two, that's oversimplified, okay? But it did catch us a little bit because many of us said, I've got to work on myself to become free and others said, I've got to work with everybody else to help them become free. We've all got to become free together. And part of the Vietnam, anti-Vietnam action was part of the we've all got to work together. And the turning inward of many of us that just pulled back from political action was I've got to get free myself. Even though I could rationalize it and say I've got to get free so that when I do something for somebody else, I'm not creating suffering through the attachments of my own mind. A lot of people in the spiritual journey, once they realized that enlightenment wasn't going to happen the day after tomorrow, and once they started to get some powers because their mind got quiet, I mean, if you do TM 20 minutes a day, you will definitely get quiet and you will start to have powers. There's no doubt about it. Then the question is, what do you do? Those are called siddhis. And siddhis or powers are a terrible trap on the spiritual path. They are a real pitfall because one is inclined to um, want to use them to do good. I mean, that's the one. 
And once you realize that, because the minute you see Sidney's, you realize the game is not at all how you thought it was. Uh, example, I was with, um, uh, what's, which story shall I tell? Um, I was with uh, Sacha Sai Baba, uh, the miracle man of southern India, beautiful man. And he said, Ramdas, let me give you something. And I said, no, Baba, I don't need anything. I have a guru. In the he says, no, let me give you something. And he held out his hand, and I went up really close, and I knew what he does, see, so I wasn't going to blink, see, because I figured he might be a magician. I'm going to really watch. So I was about this far, and I, my eyes were fixed on his hand. And he went like this, and this bluish light appeared, and it turned into a medallion, which he then gave me. It was cold. It looked like it had been made in Tijuana. <laughs> it was very badly made. It had a picture of him on a star on a circle. And I thought, my God, if he's going to bring some from somewhere else, the least he could do is bring me a, you know, a crystal or something like that. <laughs> so I said to one of the uh, swamis there nearby, I said, well, that's wonderful. I said that he produces these. He said, oh, he doesn't produce them. I said, no. He says, no, he keeps them in a warehouse. He just moves them with his mind. I said, oh, well, if that's all he does, who the hell wants it, you know? I'll just give you one more, because they're hard to stop. I'm not going to tell you my guru miracle stories, because I wrote a book, Miracle of Love, and you can read them all to your heart's content. Uh, this one was uh, with Swami Muktananda, who was a great guy, really. He was a real rascal. And um, he and I were traveling in southern India on a pilgrimage together. And one morning he got me up at four in the morning and he took me to a little temple and he sat me down and he whispered a mantra into my ear and then he started to do a puja and I passed out. I don't remember anything. About five hours later somebody came and said, Baba wants you and I had been, I don't know where I was, but I felt good. I came back and the mantra was in my head. I said, what's that mantra? He says, that will give you vast wealth and vast power. Now, being a Jewish boy from Boston, <laughs> that's what my father told me I wanted, you see. However, I'm now a righteous spiritual seeker, you see, so I said, I only want those if you give me an equal amount of compassion and love. And he says, just do the mantra. <laughs> Well, I couldn't stop doing it. I mean, I was doing it day and night and waiting for the wealth and power. And, and I got back to his temple in um, Ganesh Puri, and he put me to meditate in the inner room of the meditation hall inside. And I went down there around 2 in the morning, and they unlock it with a big key, and it's hot. It was like 110 degrees. And I took off all my clothes, and I was lying there naked. And I started to do the mantra, and I was ripped out of my body. This is like 2 in the morning. And I come to another plane, and I'm at a doorway, and I look in, and there is Muktananda sitting on a table, a tucket. So I go in, and I kneel down in front of him, and I start to fly up over his head. Now, this is all in the astral. And I think, wow, I'm flying. I always wanted to fly. <laughs> and so then I was sort of flying, and I started to tilt. And I went to write myself, and I was back in the meditation hall. This all took about six minutes. I was so manic from that experience 
I mean, so high that I put on all my clothes, rattled my gates, and they came with a key. And I opened the gate and walked outside into the dark night of the courtyard, and there was Muktananda with one of his disciples walking around in the middle of the night. And he walked over to me, and the man spoke English, and Muktananda said to me, how did you like flying? Okay. I mean, those are my direct experiences, so I have to live with that stuff. <laughs> so the question is, when you get powers, like the power to just stay quiet enough to hear what's really going on in a situation, gets quiet so you're not reactive so much, but you're more responsive, there is a tendency to want to take your winnings and get on with it. I had a funny experience. I was in um, Oahu, in Hawaii, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe eight or ten years ago. And a um, fellow said uh, that I was with, uh, Rick Bernstein, said there's, a, there's somebody that wants to see you in a shopping mall. I said, okay. So we went to this shopping mall after hours. It was closed, except there was a, sh a place in the shopping mall where there was a new Honda where there was a competition to see who could keep their hand on the Honda the longest. And whoever did would win it. And there were three people left, and they had been there for something like five days. Okay. Day and night, they had their hand on the Honda. So I said to one of them, how do you do it? He said, I'm a Buddhist. Another one, I said, how do you do it? She says, I'm a Christian fundamentalist. Third one said, I'm your devotee, I'm a Hindu. And I realized that each of them was going to win the Honda through their spiritual powers, right? I'm not even going to tell you who won. <laughs> but you take your, your, you take your gain and you put it to work. And it's an interesting question of whether I'm one of those people because instead of my being in a monastery now getting on with my that kind of inner work, I'm out here teaching. And is that a cop-out? Is that my dharma? I can say it, that my, my, it's my karma, my dharma, whatever, but I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know how we in the West are ready for the kinds of discipline that are necessary for the kinds of practices that we have been offered. I was in Burma three years ago meditating in a monastery for several months. Very, very severe meditation practice with um, um, Sayadaw Upandita, who's my meditation master. And um, you got up at 3 in the morning, you meditated till 11 at night in your cell, you did sitting and walking, that was all. You saw the teacher for five minutes a day, otherwise you were alone. You didn't read, you didn't write, you didn't do anything, you just did that. And it gets very subtle. <laughs> I mean, after you finish with your seven-hour sexual fantasies and all that stuff, I mean, after you run through, that you run through in the first three days, and then you, that was two months of that. Yeah. And uh, so I got a telegram that my stepmother had cancer, was going to be operated on, and my father was very old, and they would probably need me. She didn't say that. She just said she was going to be operated on for cancer, which I didn't know she was ill. So I went to the teacher, Sayadaw, and I said, here, and I showed him the telegram. And he said, um, I don't think you should leave. I said, well, um, 
my stepmother, my father, my father's old, they need me, it's frightening time. He said, you're making such spiritual progress, don't leave. He said, if you were a Burmese, I wouldn't let you leave. But I don't feel I have that, that, that power to do that, because you're from another culture. And I looked and I saw that my karma, as a boy from Boston with a responsibility to my family, I wasn't a sadhu who had renunciated family. And I said to him, I've got to go. And we both saw the poignancy of the situation, if you can hear that. I mean, I had to go because it was my part as, a, as who I was to do it. At the same moment, he was saying, if you continue your path, you may relieve many people from suffering. As it is, you're going back, you'll relieve suffering of a couple of people. I said, I'm sorry, I gotta do it. And it's like you get to the point where you see that you can only proceed on the spiritual path so fast because of your own karmic limitations, not because of what anybody's doing to you, but because of the stuff in you. And that rec you begin to recognize the timing of spiritual work. That you can't get ahead of yourself. You can't be phony holy because it comes back and hits you in the head. You can get so high, but you'll fall. And a lot of people fall off the path. They say they fell off the path. You see somebody who was busy in white doing dancing with big smiles on their faces and you see them about a year later and they're in a bar having a scotch and soda and, and well, I thought that was all bullshit. And, you know, and then later they say, really, I fell off the path. And I say, no, you didn't fall off the path. The impurities that in, with which you were doing it in the first place had their karmic effect. This is all the path. Once you have begun to awaken, you can't fall off the path. There's no way. Where are you going to fall to? You're going to make believe it never happened? You can forget for a moment, but it's in there. It's going to keep coming back and getting you and getting you. So don't get upset. It's okay. Go be worldly. And very often, I really push people into worldliness. You know, Go out, have more sex, have more, you know, really, more dope. Come on, make more money. Come on, do it, do it. Do it until you're done with it. Don't get done too soon because you're going to be just a, you know, you're going to be greedy if you do. So, um, a lot of our expectations were that the spiritual path, uh, I've just got a few more minutes. Can you handle just a few more? Um, that the spiritual path um, would get us healthy psychologically. That was an expectation. Um, I've said this in many lectures that some of you have heard, but it's interesting to me that I was trained as a psychologist. I was in analysis for many years. I taught Freudian theory. I was a therapist. I took drugs for six years intensively. I have a guru. I have meditated for since 1970, regularly. I have taught yoga. I have studied Sufism and many kinds of Buddhism. In all that time, I have not gotten rid of one neurosis. <laughs> not one. The only thing that's changed is where previously they were these huge monsters of, no, don't take me over again, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff, sitting in the bathtub cowering. 
Now they're like these little schmooze. You know? Oh, sexual perversity. There you are. I haven't seen you in days. Come on and have some tea. You know? And to me, that is the product of the spiritual path. That what's happened is I have, I have now rested comfortably in another contextual framework which makes me much less identified with my known neuroses and with my own desires. If I don't get what I want, that's as interesting as if I get it, it turns out. Did you ever notice that? All this, I need you. Well, you're not getting me. Oh, ta-da! You know, and then, isn't that interesting? And then you grow from that. It's far out. When you begin to realize suffering is grace, you are so, you can't believe it. You think you're cheating. Yeah. Along the way on the spiritual path, you begin to get bored with the usual things of life. And uh, Gurdjieff said, that's just the beginning. He said, um, he said, our friends found us becoming dull, Uspensky said. Gurdjieff said, that there is worse to come. <laughs> Gurdjieff said, he's an interesting man who lies well. You have already begun to die. It's a long way yet to complete death, but still a certain amount of silliness is going out of you. You can no longer deceive yourself as sincerely as you did before. You have now gotten the taste for truth. And that happens, and you lose a lot of friends, and your friends change. And uh, you don't grow at the same rate, and it's very painful, people you have loved, even in marriages, where other people aren't growing along with you, and that's a pitfall. It's very painful to go from until death do us part to we are together as long as the, the quality of loving growth is present in the relationship. And that's a complex topic that I really can't get into because it's very interesting. There's a lot of permutations of that one. Uh, but it's one that did catch many of us about feeling guilty about letting go of friends and realizing you needed new kinds of relationships and new kinds of friendships. Along the way, when that gets deep enough, when the meaning, the stuff that you justified your existence in order to achieve starts to become meaningless, when even when you win, you didn't win anything, you start to experience the dark night of the soul, the despair that comes when the worldliness starts to fall away. Never are we nearest the light than when darkness is deepest, the dark night of the soul. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.